Well, Brian, it's great to be with you. My name is Pastor John Sampson of King's Church, and we've had the delight of having Pastor Brian speak and uh, preach for us at King's Church. And I wanted to do something of a follow-up because there are other scriptures to go to that I know Pastor Brian will wish to address, maybe answer some further questions people had. Uh, I wanted to just thank you, first of all, for this uh, sermon you brought on why we don't baptize babies. It's a, actually a very important subject because it not only addresses that particular question, but it really is a reflection of how we look at our Bibles. And you were able to bring that forth so, so clearly. So I, I know that there's much more in your heart than what you could fit in in the sermon. What, what was your assessment as to some of the things you would now wish also to say? Yeah, uh, I think first that I wish I would have made a clearer point of framing this issue in terms of not just why we don't baptize babies, but, but why this issue is bigger than who we baptize, right? The, the issue itself of, of the covenant, who belongs in the covenant, is ultimately an issue about who we see as belonging in the church. And so uh, as Baptists, we, we actually believe that the church is, is composed only of believers in the Lord Jesus Christ. So in that sense, we would, uh, we would desire to have a pure church. And by mm -hmm. pure church, I don't mean a sinlessly perfect church. Mm -hmm. But I mean a church that is made up of only those who profess faith in the Lord Jesus and have uh, the works to demonstrate that. And so in a sense, we, we know that the church is always a mixed multitude, right? Um, but the thing is, is that when we admit an unbeliever into membership, we do it on accident. Yes. <laughs> right? We do it because we don't have the omniscience to know that this person's not a real believer. Or, the Lord knows those who are his, we often don't. Right. Yes. Um, <clears throat> we do it on accident. Um, in a sense, our pedo-baptist friends do it on purpose mm -hmm. uh, because they, they believe that the children of believers are, in fact, in the visible covenant. Mm -hmm. And that goes back to really what we were talking about this morning. I wish I'd have made that a little more clear, but... Mm. You've made the point now, which is great. Okay. Yeah, so who belongs in the church then? We're saying believers. Right, right, right. That would be our definition of the church, yes. of, of those who, in fact, we would say baptized yes. believers. Yes. Right. Yeah. Yeah. What we see in, say, the book of Acts, chapter 2, is people in response to a sermon of Peter's obviously believed the message, they were told to repent, be baptized, and I'm sure we're going to go to that text, uh, but they then became active members in the church. There wasn't this gap of three months or three years between one thing and another, which often happens in our churches today. Yeah, It was yeah. very, very clear they were uh, seeing baptism as the way into the church, which is really what, uh, rather than an altar call, Mm -hmm. a call to repentance and faith and should you have repented and believed in Christ you'll be fully identified with him in baptism and that means you become a functional member of the church yeah yeah 
Absolutely. So where else would you like to go as to uh, scriptures? Do you want to go to Acts 2? Yeah, yeah. yeah. Let's, go, yeah. let's go to Acts 2 because um, Acts 2 is, I, I, would, I would say, probably one of the top three um, New Testament texts that's used to uh, support the practice of, um, of covenant infant baptism. And there's, um, there's a reason for it. Um, so can I just read the text? For sure. Okay, so I'll be reading from the New American Standard, Good. 1995. Okay, so you can try to follow along. I'll, I'll, okay. I'll do my All best. Right. So this is, of course, Peter's preaching on the day of Pentecost. And verse 37, And when they heard this, they were pierced to the heart and said to Peter and the rest of the apostles, Brethren, what shall we do? Peter said to them, Repent, and each of you be baptized in the name of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins, and you'll receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. And there's sort of a a couple of interesting things just even in verse 38, and that is Peter says, Repent, and each of you be baptized, right? Uh, So he's, he's calling for an individual response and then, and you'll receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. And then verse 39, and this is the text that's, that's often used, says, um, for the promise is for you and your children and for all who are far off, as many as the Lord our God will call to himself. And so you can see the way that, it, um, that a proponent of, of infant baptism would, would use this text. They would say, Look, the promise, now at that point, what they may mean is the covenant promise, mm-hmm. okay, is for you and your children. And so it's, it's, it's that text. Um, in fact, I remember um, John Murray uh, in his book on Christian baptism um, spends a lot of time. Uh, I have a, a quote here from the Directory of Public Worship, which is part of the Westminster Standards. And... Um, so after going through Genesis 17 uh, to you and to your seed, at the end, um, it says, thus, rather than rescinding the covenant promise to believers and to their offspring in the New Testament, God reaffirms it. He declares that the promise is unto you and unto your children. And what's interesting is that this directory of public worship, of course, was the guidelines um, for Presbyterian churches that adopted the Westminster Standards. What's interesting is that the promise, very clearly, is the covenant promise, right? And yet in the text, that's not what the promise is. Mm. The promise is actually the Holy Spirit, yes. right? And so what do we make of the promises for you and for your children? And I would say that just a, a careful exegetical analysis of the text does not lead us to believe that what Peter is saying is the promise is for you and for your children. Mm. Okay. I think that if you take the text and you look at it in its component parts, what you have is the promise is for you, the promise is for your children, the promise is for those who are far off, and then here's the qualifier. Would that be Gentiles? Or who? I would say, yeah, yes, that would yes. be Gentiles, yeah. And then the qualifier is this. As many as the Lord our God will call to himself. Hmm. In other words, the promise is for you. 
and among you. Who is it for? As many as the Lord God calls to himself. The promise is for your children. How? As many as the Lord our God will call to himself. Hmm. The promise is for those who are, in a sense, outsiders, right? Yes. Who? Well, as many as the Lord God will call to himself. And so really, in a sense, um, I, instead of, of, of being a proof text of the promises for you and your children, the covenant promise, I think that really it's qualified by God's electing grace, his effectual call, and it's for you, your children, those who are far off. In a sense, he's giving us different categories and who is it that the promise is for those that God calls to himself. And then verse 41, which is a lot of times left out of the discussion. Just, just jumping in, I yeah. think oftentimes when I hear verse 39 quoted, it's often quoted without that last clause of whom the Lord our God calls to himself. It's the promise right. for you, your children, all who are afar off. There it is. Mm -hmm. We'll read the rest of the verse because I believe that's an explanation yes. of, of what comes before. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, I think, I think that that's right. Um, verse, so, verse 41, though, gives us the conclusion of the way that they understood what Peter had just said. Yes. So then those who had received his word were baptized. And that day there were added about 3,000 souls. And I want to be careful with arguments from silence, mm -hmm. but it is interesting to me that if verse 39 is so emphatic of being a promise to you and your children and they understood it covenantally mm -hmm. we get to 41 who's baptized those who would receive the word right we have to ask the question can infants do that yeah or um if the promise is for you and your children covenantally why doesn't the text tell us and as many as received his word and their children mm. were baptized mm -hmm. and of course there's just simple emphasis on those that received the word, yes. received baptism. Yes. Those who received his word were, were baptized. Yeah. 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 So rather than it being a slam dunk text that says, baptize your children, mm -hmm. the actual text with more analysis and more uh, just gazing at the text that last phrase in verse 39 is key and then verse 41 is certainly how they understood it as you put yeah, it. yeah 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 where else would you like to go well i mean i think that you know if we're going to be in the book of acts we should probably bring up the issue of household baptism oh yes that always comes up because that always comes up and there are um there are other household baptism texts that are outside of Acts, but Acts contains the, 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 the majority of them. And in a sense, uh, Acts chapter 16 is, uh, is just sort of one of those classic passages. Um, in a sense, you, we don't have to look at every household baptism text. We can mm -hmm. look at, in a sense, an exemplary one. Yes. So, of course, you remember, you know, Paul and Silas are, are in jail and they're singing hymns at midnight and God sends an earthquake and there's this um, a really, really dramatic, right? I, I actually love just how at the beginning of Acts 16, um, 
God just quietly opens Lydia's heart mm -hmm. through the things that Paul says. Then you get to this part, and this is this is dramatic conversion, right? Um, Lydia is sort of, you know, just sort of a quiet conversion. This is anything but quiet, yeah. right? So there's this earthquake, and of course the guard, um, need to remember that uh, prison guards in the Roman Empire were typically re requi uh, retired soldiers. Mm. And so they would have been, th these guys would have been uh, pretty rough guys, you mm -hmm. know? And of course, uh, shame-based culture, um, if you are a guard and your prisoners escape, better to kill yourself than to have your family disgraced mm. because of your failure. So, of course, he sees the prison doors open. He's about to fall on his sword. Now, Luke doesn't say this explicitly, but he'd been listening to Paul and Silas all night. Mm -hmm. He had no choice. He's, he's <laughs> you know, he's captive the, cap audience, he's the yeah. captive audience, right. right? And so when he's about to kill himself, the... Apostle Paul says, do yourself no harm, for we're all here. Mm. And of course... Verse 28. Yes, verse 28. He calls for the lights. He rushes in, trembling with fear. He fell down before Paul and Silas. And after he brought them out, he said, sirs, what must I do to be saved? And um, dramatic, um, in, in a sense, somewhat uh, immediate. It's not as if he was a God-fearer like mm -hmm. Lydia. And... Paul says in verse 31, Paul and Silas, they said, believe in the Lord Jesus and you will be saved, you and your household. Now, before we kind of press on, I think it's important that um, we realize that if this is, um, if this is a baptism of baby, baby's text, right? Um, then in a sense it proves too much hmm. okay because it says believe in the lord jesus and you will be saved you and your household okay so paul's not saying you and your household you'll be uh, saved and your household will be covenant members he's saying you and your household will be saved hmm. right and so uh, verse 32, they spoke the word of the Lord to him together with all who were in his house. So we kind of move to this scene where now Paul and Silas are speaking the word. You could imagine the Philippian jailer um, bringing everyone in the house together, right? It's midnight. He's waking, mm. up, waking up his family, um, you know, and of course extended family, maybe even servants, right? They're coming all in. And verse 33, he took them that very hour of the night, washed their wounds, and immediately he was baptized, he and all his, okay, all his household. And so our, our pedo-baptist friends would say, well, you don't think that there were babies in the house, mm -hmm. right? And I would say, well, I, I don't know. It doesn't right? say. It doesn't say. But... The rest of the text is clear enough to know what this means. Because verse 34, he brought them into his house and set food before them. And then notice this, and he rejoiced greatly having believed in God with his whole household. Yes. So verse 34, in a sense, gives us a clarification of what it meant that he was baptized with his whole house because 
verse 34 tells us that the jailer believed in God with his whole house. Mm. Um, I think that it is uh, just far too much of a stretch to say, well, of course, his faith was the faith of, uh, of the infants or what. I, I, I think that the, 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 the narrative is clear. He hears the word with his household. Right? You've got to be able to hear the word. Mm. He's baptized because he believes, and his household is baptized because they believe. Yeah. And so far from being a text that, in a sense, just says um, household baptism, babies must have been there, therefore babies were baptized, I think that the qualification ends up being they heard the word and they believed. Yeah. You know, and so what does that mean regarding infants? And the answer is really nothing in a sense, right? If they were there, I don't, I don't assume that they were baptized. Mm. Um, but there's nothing that actually, you know, I mean, the guy could have been my age, right? And, uh, <laughs> you know, we don't have any babies in our house. So, um, so anyway, I think, that the, I think that the effort at using household baptism, in a sense, proves too much. Um, because it's believe in the Lord Jesus, you'll be saved, you and your house. The assumption is those in your house who believe. Yeah, I think that's clear. Um, or are there any others in Acts you wanted to go to or maybe go to Colossians 2? What, what are your thoughts? Yeah, yeah, the Colossians 2 passage, I think, is um, uh a significant one for us because our our pedo baptist brothers would say you know what you have a text in the new testament that um that equates baptism and circumcision hmm. and they'd point to uh, colossians chapter two hmm. and so uh i want to know you know okay let's let's take a look at this and i think just for the sake of picking up the context um uh, Paul starts in Colossians 2.9, For in him all the fullness of deity dwells in bodily form. And in him you've been made complete. He's the head over all rule and authority. And in him, and then this is, this is where we, we get into the text. In him you were also circumcised with a circumcision made without hands in the removal of the body of the flesh by the circumcision of Christ, having been buried with him in baptism, in which you were also raised up with him through faith in the working of God, who raised him from the dead. Now, one thing is true, and that is you have circumcision in verse 11, and you have baptism in verse 12, all right? So in terms of just the proximity of mm -hmm. these two things... They're close. They're close. The question is, is the assertion that this text teaches that baptism replaces circumcision, is that assertion true? Is it provable? Mm -hmm. And what, what I see is verse 11, so in Christ, and there's a lot of exegetical detail in this text yeah. that really is um, uh, pretty intricate in some ways, 
but in him you also were circumcised with a circumcision made without hands. Now that, that phrase, made without hands, of course means God did it. Yes. Right? It's a spiritual it, yes, circumcision. Absolutely. So that, that, that very terminology, right? So um, was it Hebrews 9? There's a, the, the, the heavenly tabernacle made without hands, yes. right? Yes. Um, the, 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 the stone in Daniel 2 is this kingdom yes. that's made without hands. That's just simply imagery that it is it is spiritual and it's divine. God God has done it. It's an right? act of God. It's an act of God. Yes. So in verse eleven, there, there's a circumcision that is an act of God. Okay, and I want to just stop for a second and just say, okay, well, so Paul could have simply said that you were circumcised with the waters of baptism or something like that, right? Mm-hmm. He could, in other words, he could have made the connection mm-hmm. a little more obvious. At this point, the connection's not obvious. Mm-hmm. It's in a sense like what we were talking about this morning. What Paul's emphasizing is in a sense the spiritual significance of what circumcision pointed to, right? Regeneration. Regeneration. Yeah. And so then the next part in the removal of the body of the flesh by the circumcision of Christ. Now, this last line in verse 11 is is absolutely fascinating, and uh, time would fail us if we went into all of the the juicy exegetical detail. But there's a sense where I, I believe that Paul uses the expression, um, the circumcision of Christ, okay, so we just get a little bit technical. Mm-hmm. I think that Paul's using that in, in, as an uh, objective genitive. In other words, the circumcision of Christ. So he's, but I think that the imagery... So in other words, it's not Christ's circumcision of us, which actually might fit mm-hmm. in the context, all mm-hmm. right? But I don't think that's what he's, what he's getting at. I think that he's talking about the circumcision of Christ, but not Christ's physical circumcision when he was eight days old, but that rather he's using that imagery as a, uh, in a sense, a bloody imagery of Christ's death. Mm-hmm. Okay, And um, for those that want to look this up more, uh, for instance, Peter O'Brien's excellent commentary on Colossians, he makes a really good defense that that's what he's talking about. All right, so... The idea then is in the removal of the body of the flesh by the circumcision of Christ. So, so through Christ's atoning death, hmm. right, we end up having, in a sense, the, uh, the putting off of our sinful flesh, right, which, of course, is the circumcision made without hands, right? Yes. It's, it's the cleansing part of the regeneration, okay? And so the language, for sure, this is not, um, we'll just say this is not um, real common language with Paul, mm-hmm. okay? But it's certainly vivid, yes. and it's redemptive historical language, right? Yes. But verse 12, having been buried with him in baptism, and so our pedo-baptist friends go, ah, see, there it is, right? And I'm going to say, okay, one of my, one of my primary rules of Bible interpretation is keep reading. Yes. Okay. <laughs> so having been buried with him in baptism 
in which you were also raised up with him, and then here's the key phrase, through faith. Through faith in the working of God who raised him from the dead. And so let's just, let's just speculate for a minute and say, okay, well, Paul really is making a connection between circumcision and baptism. Um, even if that were true, I don't, I don't see that, all mm -hmm. right? But even if that were true, that little phrase, through faith, right? In other words, the person who is being baptized, who is in union with Christ, and is buried with him, this of course is Romans 6 language, yes. buried with him in baptism, is raised up with him through faith, right? So in other words, that that one who has been circumcised with a circumcision without hands, he's had through Christ's bloody sacrifice, the the body of flesh, as it were, removed, right? The, the, in other words, the very imagery of circumcision, which is vivid and graphic in mm. the Old Testament, mm. that very significance is now true of a believer who's in union with Christ and, and has been buried with him in baptism, raised with him through faith. And so I want to say that, that whatever the exegetical nuances are of this text, that what ends up happening is it ends up being a text that actually underscores the the importance of faith. Yes. Right. And um, and so again, I don't see uh, I don't see this as a warrant for uh, baptizing our our children. Mm -hmm. Yeah, through faith, whatever it is. And it 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 is so so clear when you ex explain that and yeah i think a lot of people are trying to hold on to a framework and it's only by the biblical text that we can test the framework yes it's it's a framework stands or falls by exegetical encounter you know does that stand up to scrutiny if you if you got the real thing you don't mind looking at it uh, mm -hmm. if you've got real gold in your father and his father told you you've got a gold watch and you actually believe that if someone questions that you're not gonna say well I no, you we're not gonna have this scrutinized you, you, you don't mind it being scrutinized because you believe you got the right thing and the real thing the genuine thing and then when you take it to a jeweler and he confirms it you're affirmed in your faith that it was genuine but if he tells you this isn't the real thing you'd rather know yeah you'd rather right. know right right so uh yeah we know our framework whether it stands by going to the text and say can we can we take a look at this yeah so yeah. colossians 2 is certainly a big one yeah yeah yeah, yeah. Did you want to go to 1 Corinthians 7? Is that another well, one? Well, yeah, we could. Um, yeah. yeah, that would be um, another text that's, that's used. Um, I can't remember if it was um, R.C. Sproul and John MacArthur's debate on baptism. Um, but I, I remember, and maybe it was Sproul, mm. that... Um, that had admitted that this was not one of the best texts, but it's often one that's used. Yes, right. And so the uh, the context, of course, is in uh, the context of marriage and divorce, and 
And so the apostle Paul says in 1 Corinthians 7, 12, but to the rest, I say not the Lord, which all he means by that is I don't have a direct statement from Jesus about this, yes. which he did the previous section. He's still speaking for Jesus. He's still speaking yeah. <laughs> for Jesus. We're not red letter Christians, right? right? right. All scriptures, yes. God breathe. That if any brother has a wife who is an unbeliever and she consents to live with him, he must not divorce her. And a woman who has an unbelieving husband and he consents to live with her, she must not send her husband away. So Paul um, sets up the scenario, which w would have been fairly common maybe in the Corinthian assembly, where you have one spouse that becomes a Christian and another spouse that, that, that doesn't, right? And so Paul says if the unbeliever, right, whether husband or wife, consents to live with them, right? So there, there's a, um, is, you, you could look at the phrase as they're, they're well pleased to, to, to live together, yeah. right? right? Um, Paul says, don't send them away. And then he says in verse 14, for the unbelieving husband is sanctified through his wife. And the unbelieving wife is sanctified through her unbelieving, or through her believing husband. Then Paul says, for otherwise your children are unclean. But now they're holy, <laughs> and um, and I want to. I just want to say, you know, um, uh, first of all, we have to ask, what does Paul mean by sanctification here? Mm. Right, right. Uh, he the, the the believing spouse sanctifies the unbelieving spouse, mm -hmm. right? And then we have to ask. Um, because the word holy, of course, is the noun form or the adjective form of the verb to sanctify. Yeah. Right. So we've got the same same idea with the children. Now your children are holy. Otherwise, they'd be unclean. Mm -hmm. In other words, if they were the children of two unbelieving parents, they'd be unclean. But mm -hmm. now through the influence of one believing parent, the children are holy. Okay? Everything rises and falls on what that word sanctified oh, yeah. means. Yeah, so if it's, if it's sanctification in any way that entails salvation, mm. we're in trouble. We're in big trouble. Yeah, uh, and this text ends up making um, a mess of Paul's doctrine of yeah. salvation, yeah. right? Yeah. So you have a believing husband and an unbelieving wife, and now it's like, uh, sanctified what the Spirit of God is working in them and working mm. out salvation. Mm. Uh, not, yeah. not hardly, right? No. So we have to ask them, what, what does Paul mean by sanctified here? And I think that you, you have to conclude, first of all, that he's using the term sanctified in a way that is not, um, in a sense, generally consistent with the way that he uses the word. Mm -hmm. Okay. Now, that, that actually should not be a surprise to us. It should be no big deal to us because to assume that we mean the same thing by the same word every time we use it mm -hmm. just, in a sense, defies basic linguistics. Yes. Right? We just don't do that. Um, and so Paul is, Paul is making a point here, though, and that is, listen, believing spouse, you have a sanctifying influence on that unbelieving spouse, right? What would that influence be? Well, 
you're, you're, the unbeliever is married to somebody who is in union with Christ, who is a child of God, who has the Spirit of God in them, who's justified, right? So is there, is there a sense in which, let's say, the unbelieving spouse has now, by virtue of their marriage to a believer, been set apart? And the answer is yes. Not set apart for salvation. No. But set apart because of the influence of yes. the gospel. Godly right? influence. Yeah. yeah. So when the appeal is made so that your children are now holy, to somehow assume that that entails baptism actually boggles my mind. Mm -hmm. I, I don't see mm -hmm. how in the world. And if you work your way backwards, it creates a huge problem, yeah. right? Because if your children are sanctified through a believing parent and they receive the sign of the mm -hmm. covenant, right? Why not administer the sign of the covenant to an unbelieving spouse, right? So whatever we understand by sanctifying holy, it's not going to entail, in a sense, the sign of the covenant, mm -hmm. right? Um, I think that this passage is a great text that deals with the, um, the privilege um, of being raised in a Christian home. Um, we don't treat our children as if they are um, little pagans out in the world, mm -hmm. right? Um, we don't treat them as members of the covenant, mm. right? But in a sense, I've often thought about it like, like this, you know, you've got believing parents and they have their, their home and they have their backyard, okay? And all the kids in the neighborhood may come over, all right? And you have all these neighborhood kids in the backyard, but when you, you know, you call those kids in, you know, you hey, it's dinner time, right? Your kids know where they belong, yeah. right? And so there's a sense where our kids are not just total heathen, right? They're, they're raised under the privilege of the gospel. They're raised under the influence of the gospel. They're taught to pray. They're encouraged to read their Bibles. And we also encourage them to believe in the Lord Jesus, Amen. right? And so um, that's why, by the way, sometimes, just pastorally, sometimes kids that are raised in Christian homes don't always have a clear line of demarcation as to when they've come into the yeah. kingdom. Mm -hmm. And so to push my illustration a little farther, um, you have the backyard where that's where you have truly the mixed multitude, right? Then you have the house and the children of believers in a sense are kind of like on the back porch, right? Mm -hmm. They're just—they're not out with all the, the the neighborhood kids, right? They belong close. Yes. And there comes a time where maybe those believing kids say, "Wow, I'm I'm like in the house now." Mm -hmm. Right? When did I get in the house? Yes. Last thing I remember, I was on the back porch. <laughs> uh huh. Right now I'm in the house, and I don't know how I got from here to there. But that's, you know, the children of, of, of believers, that's often what ends up happening yeah. is they don't have a Philippian jailer uh, yes. conversion. Some do, but not many. It's more quiet. Um, and so there's a privilege. And I think that's what Paul's getting at. 
the, the children are holy. That is, they're, they're not holy in, in a salvific way, but they're set apart in a way that's privileged under the sound of the gospel. Is that anything uh, akin to what we see in the Old Testament with vessels that are sanctified in mm. the sense of they're set apart for a certain purpose? Mm -hmm. um, mm -hmm. There are um, articles, there are vessels that are used in the tabernacle that were not to be used elsewhere. Mm -hmm. Is there a sense of that being in this? Yeah, because I think that what what ends up happening in those passages is that you're you're making a basic appeal to the meaning of the word sanctified, which is set apart. Yes, right, set apart. And so, in that sense, we can take comfort because our children are set apart. Yes. Okay. Um, but of course, that doesn't mean that we extend yeah. the sign of the covenant to them. Right. We still tell our children. You need to believe in the Lord Jesus Christ. Yeah. Right? So I was, uh, we had a Presbyterian friend who was preaching for us. This is years and years ago, and I'm driving him back to the airport. And I said, I said, let me ask you a question. I said, you catechize your kids, I catechize my kids. Hmm. You pray with your kids, I pray with my kids. Okay. You read the Bible with your kids, I read the Bible with my kids. I said, we do a lot of stuff that's very, very similar. Yeah. I said, what do you think the, the biggest difference is between the way you raise your kids as covenant members and the way I raise my kids? And he goes, that's actually pretty simple. He says, I raise my kids telling them that God is their heavenly father. And I raise my kids telling them that Jesus is their savior. Hmm. I raise my kids and tell them that they are Christians. You raise your kids and you tell them you need to become a Christian. Mm. And frankly, that's, that's an accurate description. Yeah. Okay. And so with all of our kids, um, we, whether family worship or whatever the context, we would encourage them, you know, turn to the Lord Jesus, be born again. Mm. And so that is, um, but, but that's a privilege to be able to hear that. Yes. parents who love you. That is a privilege. Yeah. Who then should be baptized? Well, I think that the testimony of Scripture is uh, only those who are in the new covenant by faith alone in Christ alone. Hmm. Those are the ones who should be baptized. Yes. On a broader scale, uh, broad picture, how does the doctrine of sola scriptura hit this? How does it have uh, application to this? I'm actually really glad you asked that because we would not be Baptists okay, if it were not for our commitment to sola scriptura. Hmm. And, you know, there's a, there's a resurgence today of the great tradition. Mm. There's a resurgence today of um, interpret the Bible with the church, right? And the, and I want to say there's an element of truth to that. Sure, we're, we're not. We're not. Um, in fact, we we recited the Athanasian Creed mm -hmm. this uh, this morning yes. at, at at King's Church. That connects us. Yes. Right. We're confessing what the church has confessed for centuries yes. upon centuries. Yes. 
Uh, so in that ba- sense, Catholic. Yes, in that sense, Catholic. And so as Baptists, we're not, we're not anti-traditionalist. We're not, um, we're not anti-creedal. As confessional Baptists, we're most certainly not anti-confessional, sure. right? But we have to understand that if we were simply going by tradition, that infant baptism is the tradition of the church. <laughs> right. Okay? Right. Going back to very early times, yes. that is the tradition. That is the majority position. Hmm. Um, most, with the exception of, of, of our Baptist confessions, and then some of the, like the Schleitheim confession from the Anabaptists, from the sane Anabaptists, not the crazy Anabaptists, mm-hmm. um, with, with rare exception, the, the, the confessional history, the confessional uh, tradition of the church has been infant baptism. Mm-hmm. And so... Why don't we baptize our babies? Well, because we're convinced that Scripture yes. does not tell us to, yes. right? And so it's it's actually our commitment to sola scriptura mm. that actually causes us to say that aspect of, of church history, that aspect of church tradition, that aspect of... Um, of, if you will, uh, interpreting the Bible with the church. Um, if that was the case, we w- I, I believe that we would baptize our babies. Mm. The only reason we don't is because of a commitment to Scripture, yes. which ironically is often spoken of pejoratively today mm. as biblicism, right? right? And I want to say that if biblicism means a commitment to sola scriptura, then I'm a biblicist. Yes, me too. And if <laughs> it, you, you know we're going to get in trouble for this, that's right? all right. Yeah. So, but but the idea that that somehow um, we would be in that um, let's say that stream that would say, um, uh, and you know you know you've heard this distinction, the di- distinction between sola scriptura and solo. Scriptura, right? right? And we are not saying that there's no place for tradition and there's no place for creeds. The solo position or the nuda scriptura, right? Mm-hmm. By, you know, that's where you get a lot of the anti-Trinitarian movement yeah, and stuff yeah. like that in church history. Mm. We're not. That's not our case. No. That is not our case at all. But this is our case: is that the scripture is preeminent yes. in deciding these matters, and our confession tells us that as well. And so um, I'm, I'm happy to say that I'm committed uh, to sola scriptura, and that commitment leads me to a believer's baptism position. As I understand it, the Reformation was uh, making the distinction between that which is necessary and that which is sufficient. And um, with Sola Scriptura, we're saying uh, the Bible's necessary and it's sufficient. And while we have great teachers in the body of Christ, not only in our own day, but through the centuries, we look at them and we evaluate them in the light of Scripture. Scripture is our final, ultimate uh, course of refuge, is the place we go. It's the sole infallible rule of faith 
for the people of God. Amen. Amen. Well, why don't you wrap this uh, wonderful time up with uh, a word of prayer? Sure. Father, we, we thank you that, um, that you've given us your word. Father, we, we say uh, regularly, the grass, the flower fades, the grass withers, but the word of the Lord abides forever. Mm -hmm. And Lord, we believe that. Mm -hmm. And uh, we thank you that, um, that we have a great heritage, Lord, not only as um, Protestants, but also as Baptists. And we pray that you would help us to understand these matters clearly. Uh, and we pray, too, that you would give us charity with those that differ. And, uh, Father, we, we, we want to be known not only by our convictions, but also by our love for one another. Amen. And so we thank you for this time. I thank you for my friend John. In mm -hmm. Jesus' name, amen. Amen.